0: It was a good Friday at a Baptist church in a remote part of Bangladesh. The sanctuary was packed as a movie projector spun a spool of film from reel to reel. A missionary was showing the Jesus film. Little children sat on the floor and in the aisles and across the front of the church. The seats were stuffed with people. Folks several rows deep stood behind the benches on tiptoes, craning their necks to see the depiction Of the greatest life ever lived. Well, as the crucifixion scene started, a hush fell over the room. Gasps of horror and gut wrenching sobs were heard as the Bengalis watched the torture and execution of Jesus. The villagers were moved with emotion. They had just watched Jesus work miracles and show compassion and forgive sin. Now they were trying to process the punishment of an innocent man. Well, finally, at the peak of their consternation, a little boy stood up in the crowded church and he shouted, don't be afraid, he gets up again. I saw it before. <laughs> a small boy's encouraging cry gave hope to the viewers of the film. But the disciple named Thomas didn't hear that cry, not at first. He didn't see Jesus after he got up again. Eight days earlier on Sunday night, the risen Christ appeared to a room full of disciples minus Thomas. Where he was, we don't know, but he was missing. Jesus' appearance that night was the confirmation of what the women had reported earlier that morning. Mary Magdalene was first to bolt through the barricade and shout the news that she had seen the risen Lord, other women, and then Peter also saw him. Two disciples showed up, saying they met him on the road to Emmaus. The disciples who huddled huddled together in the upper room that day didn't know what to think when suddenly, knocking on the bolted door, without slipping through an open window, without having to knock on the door, suddenly Jesus just appeared. He materialized in the middle of the room. And it was obvious that he was no ghost. He was no phantom. You couldn't see the wallpaper through his body. This was no mist or apparition. Jesus was solid. In fact, he showed the disciples enough of what the Romans had done to him to assure them it was him. He showed them his side and his hands. They could touch his scars. Hey, Jesus was human flesh as real as they were. I'm sure when the risen Christ first appeared, they were blinking and they were rubbing their eyes in astonishment, but when he left, they were convinced that he was alive. Jay Vernon McGee was a radio Bible preacher. Once a lady wrote him with a question, Our preacher said that Jesus just swooned on the cross, and on Easter the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? McGee replied, Dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes, nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him in an airless tomb for three days, then see what happens. See, the disciples had witnessed firsthand the cruel and ruthless brutalities of the crucifixion. There were no doubts in their mind that it had been lethal. And now, after a few moments with the risen Lord, they were as sure of Jesus' resurrection as they had been of his death. On Sunday night, a room full of disciples learned that Jesus had gotten up again. And he greeted them, Shalom, or peace be with you. Then he told them to share that same message, that encouraging message with others. He imparted to them the Holy Spirit and gave them authority to lead the infant church. Jesus had resurrected with him the disciples' hopes and dreams. They were reborn. Everyone that is, except Thomas. The followers of Jesus were ready to tell the world that their master was alive. And guess who their first target must have been? You guessed it, Thomas. John's Gospel reads, verse 25, The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. Notice the verb said. It means they kept on saying to him. For eight days his brothers in arms try to convince Thomas of Jesus' resurrection. These men will win continents to Christ, but they can't persuade a single solitary doubter. Thomas says, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas insists on the same kind of proof Jesus provided the other disciples. He wants to confirm the resurrection with his own eyes and with his own hands. Thomas reminds me of Carl Sagan, the stargazing agnostic. He was a staunch spokesman for evolution and an opponent of Christianity. And when Sagan died, there were no about faces. There were no dramatic turnarounds. In fact, his wife said, There was no deathbed conversion, no appeals to God, no hope for an afterlife, no pretending that he and I, who had been inseparable for 20 years, were not saying goodbye forever. Someone asked her, Didn't Carl want to believe? She replied, Carl never wanted to believe. He wanted to know. And this was the disciple named Thomas. He was slow to grasp this idea of faith. He wanted to know. He expected tangible proof and traceable evidence. You know, over the centuries, Thomas has gotten the nickname Doubting Thomas. But I don't like that designation. Thomas had the attitude... I want to know that I know beyond all doubt. Rather than tolerating a degree of doubt, Thomas wanted a faith that eliminated all doubt. He wanted a faith untainted by the slightest twinge of skepticism or questions why or dilemmas or hesitance. Rather than a doubter, Thomas was more a pragmatist. Webster defines the word pragmatism as the belief that the function of thought should guide action. In other words, think it through before you do. See, Thomas had this logic-driven approach to life. He had to be able to add stuff up, figure it out beforehand. It's interesting that the Roman Catholic Church has made Thomas the patron saint of architects and builders and geometricians and construction workers, and stone cutters, and surveyors, all professions that deal with exactness. In the arts, Thomas is often portrayed with a builder's square in his hand. He was deliberate and cautious. He had the opposite personality of impulsive Peter. In John chapter 14, we get an up-close look at Thomas. Jesus is partaking of his last supper with his disciples And I'm sure Thomas was sitting there thinking to himself, Lord, this promise of heaven sounds nice, but there's a lot you're not telling us here. I need more information if you want my heart not to be troubled. I mean, how about some drawings of heaven? Maybe some dimensions. Where are the blueprints here? And what about timetables and production schedules? You know, a builder needs details. I'm sure Thomas was biting his tongue until Jesus finally told them, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. That was just too much for Thomas. He had no idea where Jesus was going or how he would get there. Thomas didn't know what Jesus was talking about, and he was far too honest not to say so. So Thomas finally blurts out what probably every other disciple was thinking, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And it was Thomas's honest question that prompted Jesus to follow up his cryptic comment with one of the clearest declarations of his identity in all the Bible. Jesus says to all mankind in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus rewarded Thomas' honesty. Thomas also shows his pragmatic personality in John chapter 11, when Jesus heads for Lazarus' house. Thomas knew that Jesus had enemies in Bethany, and he had thought this through. If Jesus goes there, they'll all be walking right into the teeth of danger. Of course, Thomas was committed to Jesus. There was no question. He was ready to die with Jesus if necessary. In verse 16, Thomas tells the others, let us also go that we may die with him. You know, we'd say that Thomas was being pessimistic, but he probably would tell us that he was just being realistic. He was just being honest with his situation. To Thomas, all the signs indicated danger ahead. See, here's what can happen when a Christian gets overly pragmatic when he or she gets so caught up in the details of what could happen that they miss out on what God wants to do. It's okay to put two and two together as long as you factor God into the equation before you sum it up. For God may be planning what you don't expect. See, Thomas had yet to learn that all God's equations contain a faith factor. See, Christian faith is not impractical. It just makes allowance for God to do the unexpected. It's ironic. Jesus told his disciples they were going to Bethany to raise a man from the dead, while a practical thinking Thomas was worried about being put to death. Pragmatism without faith always turns to pessimism. You know, it's interesting that in the end, Thomas did die with Jesus. Tradition has it that after Jesus' ascension to heaven... Thomas became one of the most active disciples. Again, his pragmatism motivated him. If this life is nothing but preparation for the next, and if people without Jesus are dying and going to hell, and if we can truly do all things through Christ, then why not charge out into unknown territories and share his good news? Early church sources tell us that Thomas shared the gospel in Turkey, and Babylon, and Persia, in India, and as far away as China. In fact, he was called the Apostle to the Orient. And Thomas used his construction mentality to build churches. There are churches today in Malapur, India, who claim to be part of the church started by Thomas. In fact, they'll take you to his supposed burial site. Their tradition says that Thomas was martyred in 72 A.D., by an angry Hindu priest who thrust him through with a spear. His practical approach ultimately yielded a brave heart. But here's where our man Thomas stumbled. He refused to believe unless he could see for sure. He was willing to follow Jesus regardless of danger, but he just wanted to move forward with no ambiguity. His commitment to Jesus required a total assurance Thomas was the disciple who wanted a faith that answered all his questions about God and about life and about eternity. He wanted a neatly packaged faith. Thomas was willing to follow Jesus anywhere, but only if every T was crossed and every I was dotted. It's also ironic that Thomas is considered the patron saint of theologians Folks who sit in ivory towers and try to decipher God's ways have a special affinity for Thomas. They mistakenly hope, like Thomas tried, to figure out the God who is simply wanting us to obey him. See, Thomas was slow to learn that faith is not the elimination of all doubt, but it's the willingness to trust and follow God in spite of our doubts and our questions and our dilemmas. For it's true, you don't always know what you know. See, I have questions about God to which I've never been given answers. Hey, there are passages in my Bible where I'd really like more information. My life has experienced some unfair situations where I pleaded for an explanation and yet God stayed silent on the subject. I've made decisions I thought were God's will, but in the end, I wondered If I had really heard his voice, as a Christian, I've come to terms with an uncomfortable truth. If you are totally certain, it's not faith. Dr. King once said, faith is taking the first step, even when you don't see the whole staircase. Norman Shirk attended Dallas Seminary in 1981 when he wrote this poem, Let me meet you on the mountain, Lord, just once. You wouldn't have to burn a whole bush, just a few smoking branches, and I would surely be your Moses. Let me meet you on the water, Lord, just once. It wouldn't have to be on White Rock Lake, just on a puddle after the annual Dallas rain, and I would surely be your Peter. Let me meet you on the road, Lord, just once. You wouldn't have to blind me on North Central Expressway, Just a few bright lights on the way to chapel, and I would surely be your Paul. And let me meet you, Lord, just once. Anywhere, anytime, just meeting you in the Word is so hard sometimes. Must I always be your Thomas? Every believer has their Thomas times. When life gets confusing and we feel unsure, When the will of God seems murky to us and the future appears uncertain. Once there was a British chap, he shared a railway compartment with two two prim and proper and prudish looking old ladies. These two spinsters, they were busy judging anybody and everybody. They obviously were so self-righteous. Well, the conversation continued until the train passed through this long, dark tunnel In the darkness, the man kissed the back of his hand noisily several times. When the train came out of the tunnel on the other side and stopped at the nearby station, the man rose, he tipped his hat, and in a gentlemanly way he said, May I thank whichever of you two ladies I am indebted to for the charming incident in the tunnel. Well, he then rushed out, leaving the two ladies to fume in judgment over each other. The moral of the story is that sometimes things happen in the dark that never get fully explained. And if we're not careful, we can jump to the wrong conclusions, can't we? We can even accuse God falsely. At times, our desire to put two and two together can lead us astray. God... Why was I not healed? Why did I lose my job? Why was I the victim? God, why this? Why that? I just don't understand. And neither did Thomas. He wanted to see with his own eyes and touch with his own hands. He wanted to inspect Jesus' scars and see for himself and get answers to all his questions and remove all traces of doubt. The ultimate pragmatist wanted to eliminate the need for faith. Thomas wanted to know for sure. Salome also wanted to know. The mother of James and John wanted some assurance as to where her son stood with Jesus. After all, they had sacrificed so much to leave all and follow him. Salome felt that she had the right to ask Jesus if her boys could sit at his right hand and at his left hand when he entered into his kingdom. In Matthew 20, the Lord answers Salome, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Jesus was speaking of his death on the cross. Now fast forward several days and watch Salome at the foot of the cross. Two other men on Jesus' right hand and on his left hand are now nailed to crosses like Jesus. And Salome hears one of the men say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then she hears Jesus' answer, today you will be with me in paradise. And suddenly it hits Salome What if I had gotten my request? What if I had gotten what I thought I wanted? It would be my two sons on the crosses next to Jesus. My boys would be at his right hand and at his left hand when he came into his kingdom. See, at times we make requests of God and we aren't ready for the answers. If he gave us what we said we wanted, it might destroy us rather than help us. Professional golfer Tommy Bolt was playing in a tournament in Los Angeles where he was paired with a caddy known for his constant chatter. Bolt had a reputation for hot-headedness and a lack of patience. Well, before the first tee, the golfer told the caddy not to say a word. He said, I, if I ask you something, just answer yes or no. All I want from you is a yes or a no. No. Well, in one of the holes, Bolt was trying to figure out how to hit his shot, around a tree, over a lake, and onto the green. He asked his caddy, he said, what do you think, a five iron? The caddy was bound to respond only yes or no, and so he said no. Well, Bolt was insulted. He says, you don't think I can get there with a five iron? Watch this shot. Caddy just rolled his eyes, and he said it again, no. Well, Bolt hit his five iron. The ball dropped two feet from the cup. He spun around and he shouted at the caddy, what'd you think of that golf shot? Now with permission to speak, the caddy said, Mr. Bolt, that wasn't your ball. (laughs) Sometimes when God lets us have it our way, it gets us into deep trouble, doesn't it? We don't always know as much as we think we do. And God is willing to humble us. I think it's interesting that Jesus left Thomas in the dark for eight days to struggle and to grapple with his faith. And I can hear the disciples scolding Thomas, why be so stubborn? Why so arrogant? Why do you have to always see to believe? Don't you have any faith? Finally, on the eighth day, after his resurrection, with the disciples still cooped up in the upper room, Jesus returned And this time, Thomas was present, and it's one of those scenes in your Bible where you wish you could go back in time and experience firsthand. It's so dramatic. The risen Lord approaches a trembling Thomas, and he says to him, reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand there and put it into my side. And you wonder if Jesus actually grabbed Thomas' hand and guided his finger toward his wounds. As he challenged him, do not be unbelieving, but believing." It's not reported whether Thomas actually touched the scars. Something tells me by this point, he didn't need to touch or see. But the next line reads, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. For eight days, Thomas had been entrenched in his stubbornness. Refusing to draw a conclusion based solely on faith. Now he realizes the other disciple's faith was more real than his realism. A practical and pragmatic Thomas now surrenders to the unexpected. He learns faith. Did you hear of the pastor's son? Lived in the pastor's house. Just finally got tired of all these pandemic protocols especially his mother's insistence on him washing his hands. She was constantly warning her little boy about the germs. Now, Johnny, wash your hands. Finally, one day, the little guy shouted back, germs in Jesus, germs in Jesus. That's all I ever hear in this house, and I've never seen either one of them. Well, that sounded like Thomas for a time. But when he finally saw Jesus with his own eyes and saw the Savior's scars... He realized for the first time he didn't need to see. Rather than probe the wounds and ask the wise, Thomas fell on his face and worshiped. Here's what I think happened. When Thomas saw the holes in Jesus' hands and feet where the nails had been driven and the open wound below his ribs where the spear had been thrust in his side, it dawned on Thomas just how much he was truly loved. By Jesus. All his questions why. All his scrutinizing. All his pragmatic assumptions. All his putting two and two together. None of that mattered anymore. Thomas realized that he was loved. For as Jesus said to all his disciples, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Thomas finally realized that whatever had happened in the past and could happen in the future. It was overseen by a good and loving God who cared enough about him to die in his place and return from the dead. Thus, from that day forward, it wasn't answers or reasons or explanations that brought Thomas peace and comfort. It was the remembrance of those scars. It was love, not logic, that answered Thomas's questions and silenced his doubts. And here's the factor that should be inserted into all life's equations. Yes, two plus two, but you need to put an X in there, the cross. That's what equals love. Pope Gregory once commented, the disbelief of Thomas has done more for the Christian faith than the faith of the other disciples. Thomas was the initial exception that proved the rule for the rest of us. For Jesus explains in verse 29, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The blessed, the happy people are those who have learned that they don't need all their doubts resolved and all their questions answered to believe in Jesus. Verse 29 doesn't say, happy are those who see or happier those who know or happier those who understand. Jesus told Thomas, "Blessed or happier are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Hey, when you get to heaven and finally see for yourself like Thomas, you won't be talking about the answers God gave you to your questions. You'll be enamored by those scars and the love that they have communicated. You too will fully surrender, my Lord and my God. True faith can live without, can live with a few uncertainties, and a little mystery and some ambiguity and a limited vantage point as long as it remembers the scars that prove his love. We all have our Thomas times when we're faced with doubt, but just don't turn your back on those scars. I have placed my life into God's hands not because he's responded to all my whys or satisfied all my arguments or eliminated all my quandaries or even informed me of all the details but because my life is directed and protected by hands that bear the marks that bear the evidence of a love greater than I can imagine. Nail holes in resurrected hands, wounds in an incorruptible body? This is what speaks to me of God's love and grace. His scars signal the extremes Jesus went to save me and forgive me and provide for me. Scars of Jesus are all the answers real faith requires. You know, Job was a man like Thomas who had his honest doubts. But in the end, Job had to face his own limitations. William Sapphire writes of Job, Having succeeded in making direct contact with his creator, Job reacts to God's awesome rebuke by putting his hand over his mouth and accepting the limits of his logic. Thomas also accepted the limits of his logic, his knowledge, and he found in Jesus' nail-scarred hands God's limitless love. Here's for all the Thomases in the crowd today. Don't assume that honest doubts and unanswered questions will disqualify you from meeting the risen Christ. Jesus doesn't back off from a faith that's a work in progress. He's not intimidated by a pragmatic personality. He just wants us to admit the limits of our logic, that none of us have all the answers. Until the day we die, none of us will ever get it all figured out. That shouldn't keep us from drawing close to his wounded side and holding fast his nail-scarred hands and receiving the mercy and comfort he gives. Like Thomas, surrender your life today to the risen Christ and declare him to be your Lord and your God. Let me close by pointing out really a big detail. Verse 24. Now Thomas called the twin. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. You know, the word Thomas actually means twin. He was a twin. But who was his twin? We don't know. Unless it's you. Unless you are one of those gotta know people. You know, some of us have asked so many questions. We've tried to decipher so many complex issues that we've forgotten the very first lesson we learned on the first day of Sunday school. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's the truth every Thomas and his twin really needs to know Jesus. The next time you're facing a perplexing situation and you have no idea what God is up to, remember what you do know. Remember the cross. Remember his scars. Remember the risen Lord who appears to people who long for the who even more than for the why. When your circumstances don't make sense, remember that neither do his scars. What did we ever do to warrant that kind of love from Almighty God? Cross-examine your situation. View it through the lens of Calvary's cross and the empty tomb. When logic fails, trust in his love for the sake of his scars. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for Thomas, Lord, because we are all like Thomas at times. We all have our Thomas times when we're overwhelmed by what we don't know, when we get no explanations. Lord, help us in those moments to trust in the scars, to recognize your love for us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us.